0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Afcon Diaries. Uh, today is day six, and I'm joined by two very good friends of mine. We have Alistair Haworth over here uh, of the On the Whistle podcast, uh, freelance journalist as well, and we have Alex elia uh also freelance journalist, working collaborating with several media, mostly in Italian. I can say. Yeah,
1: Italian and international media, but at the moment I'm I'm running my own newsletter in
0: African football. Okay. Let's recap the day. Oh, uh, yeah, Kura Subscribe on Substack. So let's recap the day. Day started off with a 4-2 victory, Equatorial Guinea over Guinea-Bissau. Six goals in that game. Um, Emilio Nsoui scores a hat-trick, the first hat-trick in an African Cup of Nations since 2008. Alistair, let me ask you something. Is there any logical explanation for Emilio Nsoui, uh not being a prolific goal scorer with this club and then scoring so many goals with Equatorial Guinea?
2: Emilio Nsoui is... An amazing guy, I was lucky enough to speak to him a couple days ago and he's remarkable because he came up through, He's born in Mallorca to a Mallorcan mother, an Equatorial Ghanaian father, grew up playing for Mallorca when they were in La Liga under Michael Laudrop, he played through every single Spanish youth team, so like U15, U17, I think he won the U21 Euros Mm. in 2011, 2012, with, with a great Spain team and essentially it's kind of between him and Bojan were the two like up-and-coming centre-forwards. And then in his, I think it was his second season at Mallorca, Michael Laudrup just said, like, and Insue told me this, he said, he said, you're terrible at finishing, so I'm going to put you out on the wing. <laughs> and then from there, he just slowly went back and back and back to then when he mo- left Mallorca to go to, to, he came to England, played at Middlesbrough Birmingham. He then became a right back. But at this point, he still played as a center forward for Spain for their youth teams. And then when he eventually didn't make it to the Spain Olympic team, he decided to switch to Equatorial Guinea. And then he played as a center forward. And literally, it's it's incredible because on his debut for Equatorial Guinea, he scored a hat trick um, and he was made captain. For his first game, and, and the game, I think it was—I can't remember who it was against—but they ended up. He was ineligible for that game because they hadn't finished his paperwork. Mm. So if you go through his records, even though he's already the Equatorial Guinean top scorer, he's still missing three goals mm. because that game was ruled ineligible because he wasn't. Did they lose points for that, do you think? I can't remember. What's that, what's that? Yeah, I can't
0: remember. Million two an Afcon legend. I think if any of you have been watching Afcon over the last uh, what, since, since yeah, twenty fifteen, since then, yeah, uh, you, you know the name. Uh, Alex, uh, what are your thoughts of that match? What did you think of Guinea-Bissau? What did you think of their defending conceding four goals?
1: Well, uh, I would like to talk more about Equatorial Guinea. <laughs> <laughs> it's true that Alex,
0: <laughs> you you have you're on texting terms with uh, the coach, yeah. Warren yeah,
1: exactly. Bovian, yeah? I, okay. I really like I really right. like his attitude, mm-hmm. the the attitude of Juan Mica. Uh, during the press conference, he said this is our chance to get through, so we have to win this game. Uh, so he didn't, uh, he didn't change much um, and, and adopted a yeah, very, very offensive um, very, very offensive, uh, how can I say, system. Uh, I think that the key player at the moment is uh, Jose Machin, uh, who is performing very, very well, like connecting the midfield uh, uh and, and the attack uh, maybe maybe the, the the goal difference uh was too much but I think that this is just the result of what Equatorial Guinea have been doing since many many years yeah. and uh, they are like bearing the fruits of of their work and uh, probably four points will be enough to get through to the to the round round of 16.
0: Equatorial Guinea were nominated as one of the sides, uh, one of the national teams of the year during the CAF Awards and they've been on a, a pretty good streak even through qualifying. Uh, Guinea Bissau I thought looked a little naive defensively. Franco Ju had a good game. Uh, he was nearly on the end of the first goal but ended up being an own goal but by his presence there he, he pretty much forced that in. Uh, I think he was robbed of a penalty that was quite clear in my opinion as well. But let's move on to the second game. You guys were both at that match if I'm not mistaken. Nigeria versus Cote d'Ivoire. This was a big one because Cote d'Ivoire came into this match with three points and Nigeria with one point. I think Cote d'Ivoire had a fairly positive first match, even though there were things to improve in Nigeria. I think, you know, they carried some pessimism into this tournament because of that international window, right, where they drew with Lesotho and Zambia. Um, and Nigeria comes away with a victory. Alistair, were you surprised by this result? And what were your main takeaways from this match?
2: Uh, yeah, I was, to be honest. I, I thought. I remember walking into the stadium and saying I think the best case Nigeria can get out of this game is kind of scraping a a draw and kind of let Cote d'Ivoire dominate and and they get the draw. But I think that the tactical switch was just worked worked a charm, like moving to the back three. Were they
0: playing a 3-4-3?
2: yeah, 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 yeah. So, they, yeah, they, exactly. They brought in Calvin Bassi for for uh, Ibrahim Yusuf, who I think was actually my my best player in their first game. I thought he was excellent. But I think he kept carrying a knock. Um, and Bassi was brilliant. And they just, yeah, they just essentially, they accepted that Cote d'Ivoire was a better midfield than them. Yeah. They accepted that they would be dominated. And they just kind of played around that. And I thought that kind of... Direct, yeah? yeah? they played really direct. And again, with Victor Ozyman, you yeah. can. Like, yeah. watching him in the flesh is just unreal. Terrible. He's so good. Like, every single thing he does is the right decision. Um, and yeah, they, I think they, you know, obviously I think it was a penalty, but it wasn't like they were dominating the game, but they managed the game so, so well. I was really surprised. I didn't think Nigeria had it in them because against Equatorial Guinea, they looked like a bunch of individuals. They didn't look like a team, but in this game, they, they just managed the occasion so well in contrast to the Ivorians who kind of lost their head. Um, yeah, I, I like what some of you guys talk about that, but yeah, I was really, really surprised by Nigeria and, and also quite surprised by, by Cote d'Ivoire.
0: Alex, do you have any thoughts about Cote d'Ivoire or Nigeria? Uh,
1: let me just add something about Nigeria. Nigeria uh, I think that the Equatorial Guinea win uh, put even more pressure on them. So I think that what's also. Uh, they were more desperate, you think? Yeah, yeah, of yeah. course. Because Equatorial Guinea uh, got to four points, they were starting again with just one point. Can you imagine the, the, the spirit if they lose against Ivory Coast after the game? So I think they coped very well with, with the high pressure. And uh, I think the, the, the change with uh, one more centre-back and 3-4-3 three, three was needed because Peseiro and his staff don't have the time to find a proper identity. They have to be very concrete. They have to, be very, uh, they have, they have to try to uh, build a very solid team. Which can be, uh, which doesn't have to to make too many mistakes in a short lived tournament, you know. So I think this change was much needed and and paid off. Uh, Ivory Coast, I think. Probably, they they, I mean, it was a very intense match. It was a very intense match, even despite I mean the the humidity and the heat. So. I, I wouldn't say that Ivory Coast uh, performed bad. I think that just uh, Nigeria put much effort, fought better, and was probably, you know, when you when you when you're down and you have only one point, uh, you have to fight until the last second. Uh, yeah, that's it. That was the difference, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, the Nigeria's backs were against the wall really, and they had to come up with a result otherwise they were going home. Um, I also agree with Alistair about Osimhen. I mean, watching him, I was not watching on television and just seeing uh, the amount of ground he covers, the way he harries defenders. You can never really uh, take your eye off of him. And he's, he has to be such a, a headache to defend against, right? I mean, yeah, I, oh,
2: sorry, <laughs> no,
1: in the mixed zone, in the mix zone, uh, Osimhen said that uh, the players uh, were told that they were going to change the system a couple of days before the game, so they didn't, even try the system they so much. They didn't practice it so much, mm-hmm. but he said that he liked he likes the system the system a lot, and that uh, he thinks uh, it's the best
2: system in that
1: mo- in this moment uh, for to for Nigeria. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah,
2: the only thing I was going to add about Ozzyman is because I was trying to watch him throughout the game, like especially when he was off the ball. And what really struck me about him is like the way he talks and relates to the other Nigerian players. But you can just say, see every time, like there was one time where I think it was Chukweze gave it to, to Iwobi, who gave it into Ozzyman, and Ozzyman kind of left it because he just assumed Chukwezi was like going to be making the run that he should have been making, and he got really frustrated with him. And you can see every time a Nigerian player makes a mistake, he gets like, he kind of tells them off, but then he claps and then he encourages them. And it really struck me that like, we see so often in these tournaments, teams revolve around a single player and they take over the game and you know it becomes all about them and they really struggle the team struggles because it has to go through them whereas with ozyman he kind of really brings up the level of everyone around him and he's really kind of i yeah i was really surprised at how much kind of leadership he showed i was really struck by just kind of what a presence he was both kind of on the ball but also as as a leader on on the team i think those the greatest of players tend to elevate you know their
0: teammates not just put in their own great performances can we move on to the next match or have one last thing to say can you move on to the next match? No, I would like to say that during, <laughs>
1: during, during the media, the Nigerian media day, I've got the chance to interview Oseman Yes, Nine and minutes, uh, yeah. yeah and uh, but in the in, in the previous interview with I think it was the um, social media manager, Nigeria's social media manager, Ossiman said, "Yeah, many people thinks, uh, think I'm like uh, rude. I'm on polite in the, on the pitch, but it's just that I care a lot." I want, uh, I want to give my best mm. uh, and I want my teammates to give their best. So uh, it's just a matter of, of caring about the
0: game. Okay, uh, let's move on to the final match. Speaking of teams uh, who sometimes revolve around one player, <laughs> Mohamed Kourouz and Ghana. Uh, the storyline after the first match was that they were outplayed by Cape Verde, I think, and that's probably a fair assessment. Um, Mohamed Kourouz has been really the driving force for the Ghanaian Black Stars over the last... Hell, we can probably push that all the way back to the World Cup, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, and Egypt come in after drawing with Mozambique. And remember, they played that weird tactical system to start the match with Salah behind the striker. And today it was much more of a 4-3-3 with a ball-playing midfielder Imam Ashour in midfield and Mohammed Salah back on his right wing. Uh, star boy, star boy, star boy.
2: Alistair, <laughs> what did you make of Mohamed Kuris today? Oh, my goodness. Like... I love, love watching Kudus because I think he brings like all the best elements of Ghanaian football together because he's kind of got this, he's incredibly physically dominant, like unreal engine on him. Like he can play as an eight, he can run up and down the wing if he's on the wing. He's just like, and you know, he gets through that at West Ham, you know, Mm -hmm. he he works so unbelievably hard. But then his technique is just crazy. Like his highlights real in terms of his touches. And yeah, while watching him playing, it was just... You know particularly in the second half you saw every time he got the ball like egyptian players just kind of corralled around him and every single time he just was so unflappable like touch touch pass move the ball so well it kind of in that sense he really actually the per- person he kind of reminded me of was actually in the second half was was luka modric right. just like tight spaces turn out dribble move it. the it's ball not, it's not
0: really the same style of yeah. play but it's a similar function of how he plays the game right yeah i mean absolutely press resistant, yeah i mean like yeah manipulating space around him and players around him yeah absolutely i could see that actually yeah
2: yeah and then like look i'll be honest this 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 The one thing I've always said about this Ghana team is it's a team of individuals, not a a team. But when you've got an individual like Mohamed, it's 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 not an issue. Like, yeah, it's brilliant. Uh, Might as well rely on him,
0: exactly, yeah. Um, What did you think of... Okay, is this fair to say? Is it fair to say that Egypt were better after Mohamed Salah came off with injury? Or do you think it was just like... You know, the moment they were ca- coming back into the match, they had also made subs. You know, they took off Mohammed El Nani, for example. People believe he was a little bit of a, you know, let's say a sterile uh, performance from him. Do you think that Egypt were better without Mohammed Salah, or is that unfair to say?
1: Do you, ma- do you want me to answer?
0: I want you to answer, of course. <laughs> yeah.
1: I've just watched the last five uh, minutes. Yeah, sorry, sorry, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because Afghan, Afghan means sometimes. This is a behind that, the scenes, inside. Yeah, Afghan means sometimes that you can lose a game. Yeah. You cannot make it a game because of. Some reasons you never know.
0: <laughs> this guy yesterday was with me until midnight. We we're eating barbecue. He spills water all over his backpack. He started panicking because <laughs> his laptop was in his backpack. He probably didn't sleep all night from the stress. Thankfully, his backpack works. This guy was in San Pedro uh, driving down with a cab driver that came all the way from Corjogua from the northern Cote d'Ivoire. They broke down and he probably had how many hours of sleep do you have? Like two, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> And then not to mention they were at the other match and then they arrived late for this match. So I'm going to give a little bit of my analysis on this one. Me personally, I thought uh, Kudus absolutely made a difference. But also Majid Ashimero, I think uh, was a good ball, uh, progressed the ball very well in midfield. I think it's him. the combination of him and Kudus uh, alongside, you know, one of those defensive midfielders, I think is probably the way to go for Ghana. Um, besides that, I thought Semenyo did a good job of harrying defenders and being physical. Uh, Inaki Williams and Jordan Ayu I thought were a little bit frustrating I could see why uh, Williams came off early and I was actually a little surprised why uh, Ayu didn't come off a little earlier uh, I think Jiku and Salisu were, were okay as well but this match was one where uh, I thought Overall, it was a good match back and forth, but in key moments, there was some pretty poor defending and goalkeeping. I don't know if you guys saw those goals or not, but they were, they were pretty, pretty poor at times. I wanted to ask you guys about one phenomenon that we've seen at this Afcon, though. Um, we've seen when a team scores a goal, either they score a second goal very quickly after, or the opposition scores right after. So it's like we get like, these bunches of goals sometimes, you know? It happened the same in the first game. It happened in the first game, for sure. Uh, Guinea-Equatorial Guinea and, uh, and Guinea-Bissau. Um, it didn't happen in the second game because there was only one goal. But in this this match, I think we had three goals within the span of maybe less than ten minutes. Maybe yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, do you think that's due to anything? Did you guys give that any thought? Uh, is this like a lack of concentration? What do you?
2: I think I think this game. One thing to keep in mind is like the, just the environment. Mm. Like the crowd was yeah, so electric. up for it. It was, genuinely was incredible. Like the atmosphere, and I think that just kind of contri- contributed to the chaos because it wasn't. Obviously, there was a lot more Ghanaians than, yeah. than Egyptians, but it was like a wall of noise every time either team was on the ball, yeah. and I think that part of it kind of contributed to it because we saw it. You know, both Egypt's goals were you know, disastrous yeah. mistakes bad, from Ghana defending, yeah. and I think that was that was a huge part of it. Is clear, clearly, Ghana are under some, the same kind of pressure as Nigeria. I mean, I was at their press conference, their post-match press conference after they lost to Cape Verde, and I have never been in such a hostile environment. Yeah. Just like every single question was just like you. Yeah, essentially, they, they weren't even questions. They were just saying, like, Chris Uton, you failed Ghana. How do you respond to that? Like, it was, um, yeah. So I think the players are under em- enormous pressure, and we can see that. And I I think that's, I don't know if we, we can say that about the other games, and that's why, but I think this AFCON is a bit bit different from a lot of previous ones, especially the last one, because, you know, Cameron didn't organize it super well, but also because of COVID. So, there, you know, the fans weren't yeah. there. There wasn't the kind of the same environment. Medical protocol. Ex- exactly. And then, as well as here you know Côte d'Ivoire being so close to so many neighboring countries we're getting huge amounts of fans for games that you know traditionally AFCONs we might not have gotten particularly in the last kind of set of AFCONs that haven't been in places that are the most accessible for a lot of countries so I think that also contributes to it I think it just creates a more chaotic environment and allows for these people in terms of on the pitch I don't know I can't yeah, tell you the answer yeah. I think it's, it's interesting
0: it individually yeah
2: all right uh should we wrap up let's wrap up with this
0: after two match days in Group A, can we all agree that Guinea-Bissau was out? Yeah? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, are we getting three teams coming out of Group A? Or do you think uh, Cote d'Ivoire is going to go through? Do you think Nigeria is going to go through it? I think Equatorial Guinea, I mean, with four points, should be through, right? Yeah. Uh, Nigeria have four points as well. Could this be one of those groups that we have three, three, yeah. three teams advance from?
2: Yeah. I, I think it's, that's very likely. I mean... As brilliant as Equatorial Guinea had been, I think against Nigeria they did ride their luck. I think Jesus Soono was brilliant, and I think you know Victor Azima missed a couple chances. Uh, I think that because of that, I think Cote d'Ivoire will come at them. I can't really see Equatorial Guinea beating them, and if, if Cote d'Ivoire get a draw, all three of the teams will be on four points. And I don't think there's ever been a time, certainly not in the AFCON, I don't know about other tournaments with the, the best placed third team, where four points doesn't get through, so I definitely think that all three of them will go through fourth best third place teams qual- qualified to the knockout stages in the
0: previous Afcon there were two teams with four points and two teams with three points uh, Tunisia and Comoros being those teams Alex uh, you agree three three teams coming out of this group Yeah definitely I agree uh, let's let's
1: remind that uh, Equatorial Guinea has a plus 2 goal difference and uh, five uh, yeah. they, they scored five goals so this is very important yeah. uh, unless they 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 lose with a lot of difference against, against the, the last opponent, I think they, they will get through together with Nigeria and Ivory Coast. Uh, if Tunisia all the time can get through with three points and, and a bunch of, <laughs> of goals scored, I think Equatorial Guinea can get through and deserve to get through.
0: And uh, let's talk then about Group B. Uh, Ghana now have one point. Egypt have two points. Which of these sides is more in danger of not progressing? Uh, Egypt has to go on to play Cape Verde. And Ghana have to go on to play Mozambique. Which of the sides is most, which of these sides are in most danger of not progressing for you, Alistair?
2: Man, that is hard to answer, particularly having not seen the Cape Verde and and uh, Mozambique game. I just think watching Cape Verde was electric. You know, I think they generated the most XG of any team at the Afcon mm. so far against Ghana. But you know, I think Egypt, having been, you know, I think a big part of that was a surprise factor because a Cape Verde had. Not, not at an AFCON ever played that style of football before. I think they've been playing it in kind of qualifying, but last AFCON, it was 3-4-3, incredibly yeah. defensive. So I think part of that took Ghana by surprise, and I don't think it will take Egypt by surprise. But at the same time, Mozambique were, you know, brilliant against Egypt, really defensively solid, kind of didn't concede much and, you know, have... have you know we're talking about ball people who can progress the ball they have those kind of players they have you know I, the guy who impressed me so much was gima Gimenaish, the their midfielder who's kind of recently joined the team and they'll have jenny katamo back mm. who's obviously you know an electric player from from sporting their top goal score and qualifying so I, honestly it's on a knife edge for me i think i would probably say at this point Ghana might might be the one that's more likely but it's, which is ludicrous yeah. to say, no, but, but I think it's true. Could be, yeah, absolutely. What about
0: you? Uh, you see it the same way as Alistair?
1: Oh, I would still say Ghana.
0: is Why? in danger because they,
1: they have one point and they're close to... I mean, they might uh, get disqualified in the grip stage for the second time in a row after, uh, after they didn't fail since 1982 to go through to the, to the knockout phase. So, I mean, it's a huge, huge pressure huge, huge pressure that uh, both Cape Verde and Mozambique didn't have.
0: All right, that's about it. Let's wrap up this podcast. We're in the press, the media center of the uh, Stade Felix Ufwet-Boani. I think a lot of the journalists are still in the press conference or in the mix zone. Um, I think we're all a little bit tired. I'm the only one going to Yamoussoukro tomorrow for Senegal versus Cameroon. Um, and I think we're just going to sign off there. You can follow Alex Ali at Chismich on his sub-stack It's in Italian, but it's very, very, very good can follow uh, oh yeah and just on his twitter account as well i'm gonna link that in the description you can follow alistair also on twitter i'm gonna link that and also on on the on the whistle podcast an actual proper podcast where they actually interview other people it's not just me talking to a webcam for (laughs) for 15 to 20 minutes at a time i do follow both of them and uh, we're gonna sign off here and we'll pick it up again tomorrow for another set edition of the afghan diaries
1: aquaba aquaba